Hey everybody, I'm Andy Ostroy. Welcome into The Back Room. The vast weight of evidence presented so far has shown us that the central cause of January 6th was one man, Donald Trump, whom many others followed. None of this would have happened without him. He was personally and substantially involved in all of it. Exactly how did one man cause all of this? Today we will focus on President Trump's state of mind, his intent, his motivations, and how he spurred others to do his bidding, and how another January 6th could happen again if we do not take necessary action to prevent it. That was Liz Cheney at yesterday's January 6th committee hearing. Uh, She was not only describing what is going to take place at that particular hearing, but she kind of brought us up to speed and summarized uh, for America Donald Trump's role in the entire insurrection. We are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. And every American is entitled to those answers so we can act now to protect our republic. So this afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. And whether Trump shows up to testify or not is uh, anyone's best guess at this point, and we'll talk about that briefly in a couple of minutes. But the big takeaway yesterday from this hearing, and this is the most important thing of all, is that this was a premeditated plan. It was a conspiracy aided and executed by Trump's senior aides, congressional Republicans, the media, militia groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and perhaps, perhaps even some members of law enforcement like the Secret Service and the FBI. But the key is that at the top of this conspiracy, just like in the mob, the the Don, the godfather, was Trump. It was his plan. He orchestrated every step. He knew there'd be violence. He knew there was no fraud. He knew that he lost. That was a big, big takeaway from yesterday, that he knew. He spoke to several people and basically admitted that we have to do something because it would be an embarrassment if people knew he lost. That goes to intent, He intended for all of this to happen, despite knowing it was wrong, knowing it was a lie, knowing it was illegal. He spread the big lie anyway. And that, my friends, is sedition, an attempt to undermine the electoral process, overturn the election, and steal a second term. The other thing that I I was just thrilled by yesterday was watching this Just learning about what happened behind the scenes. And later on on CNN, they played some exclusive footage of a a film that was being made that day by Alexandra Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi's daughter. And they showed, I think it was about 17 minutes of this, and the behind the scenes of like Pelosi and Schumer on the phone with with, uh, DOD, Department of Defense, and uh, Attorney General, acting Attorney General, I think it was uh, Rosen, trying to get help, trying to get the cavalry to come. And, but specifically watching Nancy Pelosi. I mean, that woman is a freaking ninja. I mean, she never lost her cool for a second. Uh, Schumer, in his own way, I love the way he was just going after the attorney general saying, you know, this is your job. Do something about it as your uh, in your role as attorney general. I'm even going to throw a proper two to Pence. I, I know people get crazy. Liberals get crazy when when, you know, 
sort of are grateful for what his role was. But the truth is, he had a, an intense amount of pressure coming at him from his boss, death threats, in a sense, from his boss to the throngs of people who came with gallows to the the capital. And he, his life was definitely in danger, yet he he stood his ground and he honored his oath. And, you know, it's important to understand that because there's a lot of people in Congress that day who did not honor their oath and have not been doing that since. So, yeah, it's his job and that's what he's supposed to do. But, you know, uh, the same can be said for Pelosi and uh, Schumer. And I also want to say that whenever the zombie apocalypse comes, I want to be on Pelosi's team. I want her to be the leader of my gang and I'm going to follow her to wherever she wants to go. The other thing I want to point out is that it is impossible to imagine any of these hearings, any of this process occurring, any progress to be made, and ultimately accountability to be had on Donald Trump without Liz Cheney. Try to imagine this committee if it didn't have a Liz Cheney. Think about the credibility, the legitimacy. Not that there wouldn't be credibility or legitimacy, but in the minds of many, many people, it would be so easy, even beyond what they're thinking now anyway, it'd be so easy to say, oh, this is just a democratic witch hunt. She adds heft and credibility and le legitimacy to this. And I think it was a very powerful hearing and the closing, uh, the way they voted on, on subpoenaing Trump. I don't know, Maddie, what do you think of all this? Do you think he's going to show up for a subpoena? Do you think uh, this has any impact on the midterms? Uh, no, I don't think he's going to show up. I, I think he's already put out, uh, the New York Times was reporting, I believe last night, that he would show up if he could testify live, which of course is never going to happen, it would be ridiculous. Um, just going back to the room with Nancy Pelosi, though, I think the other thing we learned, uh, aside from the fact that Chuck Schumer was was pretty good and Nancy Pelosi was amazing, was that um, Representative Steve Scalise and Jim Banks were complete liars because back in June, they uh, said, oh, they wanted to know if Nancy Pelosi had delayed the National Guard. And right. They were never going to learn that in these hearings. And of course, we know that they were literally in the room when she's on the phone on a conference call with Mitch McConnell next to her, begging the National Guard to be there every which way. Yeah. No, I think, uh, look, there's a reason why, you know, she's Nancy Pelosi and has been doing this game for so long and is a great vote getter and is, you know, a great speaker of the House because she, under the most incredible pressure, you know, in an existential crisis, this woman, this person, and I don't want to genderize her, this person just, she got the job done. I mean, she's almost 80 years old. Yeah. And so that I think was incredible. And her daughter just happened to be there that day, you know, filming. And, and you know, the best thing to come out of that clip, in a way, was also her saying, yeah, let Trump come down to the Capitol. I will punch him. I will punch him in the face. I'll get arrested. I'll go to jail and I'll be happy. And just pointing out that Alexandra Pelosi is a renowned uh, documentary filmmaker, yes. not just, just some daughter hanging out. <laughs> hey, mom, I'm coming with my iPhone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mom. Yeah, no, she's a acclaimed documentarian. The other thing I want to talk about before we get to Soledad is uh, it's one of a little bit of a personal nature, rooted in, in personal experience, of course. But yesterday we saw the Parkland uh, mass shooting verdict, uh, the killer was facing death penalty or life imprisonment without parole. The jury opted for the latter. Very upsetting to the families. I could say that over the years, I've been torn with the whole death penalty issue. I understand that there are people on death row who are innocent and then eventually get released. And I know you got to either have the death penalty or not have the death penalty. But my God, in this particular case where 17 people died, mostly children, under such horrific circumstances where there was no issue, 
it just it's it just seems like uh, it just seems like the wrong verdict. We've had Fred Gutenberg on 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 the pod. He's a friend of mine. He lost his daughter Jamie uh, in the shooting when she was fourteen. Uh, I watched him in court. I watched the other parents. Uh, they clearly were not happy with this verdict. I don't know. It just makes you think of what different things could have happened and should happen. So, anyway, let's get to Soledad. She's incredible. She's an award-winning documentarian journalist, speaker, author, and philanthropist who founded Soledad O'Brien Productions, which is a multi-platform media production company dedicated to telling empowering and authentic stories on a range of social issues. She anchors and produces the Hearst TV political magazine program Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien and is a correspondent for HBO Real Sports. Her documentaries have appeared on HBO, Discovery Plus, Peacock, BET, PBS, and elsewhere. She has over 1.3 million followers on Twitter, where she's a frequent critic of the media, the mainstream media. Her op-eds have appeared on the New York Times and Huffington Post, and she's given congressional testimony on media disinformation. She has anchored shows on CNN, MSNBC, and NBC, and reported specials for Fox, BET, A&E, Oxygen, Nat Geo, PBS NewsHour, WebMD, and Al Jazeera America, among others. Her work has been recognized with three Emmy Awards, two George Foster Peabody Awards, three Gracie Awards, two Sin Awards, and an Alfred I. DuPont Award. Her most recent series, Black and Missing, available on HBO, won an Independent Spirit Award. Soledad, welcome into the back room. I love the back room. Isn't that kind of cool? Reminds me of my first apartment uh, in New York City in Soho in 1991, where, yep, yep, yep touch I, each... can, I can reach the walls exactly. by just stretching out. Yep, yeah, yep. and that would be 5000 a month. That's now. right. Cozy. So we in the back room like to get a real window into someone's soul <laughs> right off the bat. And, and one of the ways we, we do that, and I, I think I might know part of the answer to this already, but to find out if you're a dog or a cat person. Oh, gosh. You know, I have a cat and I've had a cat for 15 years and I have two dogs that we got during the pandemic. There you go. I do love a cat, but the cat I currently have is difficult. Mm. Cats, you know, cats don't need to love you. They give you nothing. If they don't want to give you anything, my cat that I have now is very much like, lady, I don't care about you at all. Keep the food coming. Mm-hmm. And I and and you're judged and, and they're not nice and you have to just take it. So it's hard to be Sounds a cat like person. Dog. But my other cat, my cat that passed away, I was actually, she was great. She was... um big boned, 25 mm. pounds. <laughs> big her name was Casey. And I had her in, um, in, in school and in my first job, like she was amazing. And she was just this big job. We used to put a leash on her and walk her through the parks of San Francisco my God. and she would scare the other dogs. Like that was an amazing cat. So if you ask me that question, right. So you're both, I'm a little bit of both. Yeah. Okay. But both is sometimes a cop out answer. All right. Let's do it I this like way. the Mets and the Yankees. You know how when people say like, if you, if you were if you were going to be stranded on an island for the rest of your life, what was the one album you would take? Like, you're going on an island for the rest of your life, or you're taking a dog or a cat? You're going to have to take a dog. There you go. Because a cat will leave your ass. She will find a way off the island and leave steal you behind. Your, steal your food. Take all your food exactly. and leave you. And not tell anybody. She's right. like, no, I was on the island alone. Why do you ask? <laughs> <laughs> that is my cat. All right. Valentina. So, I want to start with just a few minutes of, of childhood. Oh, sure. um, I've heard... You talk about your childhood. You uh, came from a 
what seems to be a very loving family, big family, uh, parents, very smart, educators, um, very nurturing, kind, inspiring, probably the exact opposite of what I was used to <laughs> when I was growing up. Uh, you have a bunch of siblings, like five or six, right? Five, and they all, yeah. all of you went to Harvard, every I single know. one of them. I know, yeah. And as a, as a parent of somebody who just started college, like I'm thinking about the cost of that. And it makes me shudder. But. Yeah, but you know, college, I think I spent my, the cost of Harvard my first year was $16,000. It was just not as crazy and as insane. And $16,000 right. was... But times six is... Like, yes, for sure. And I mean, we got loans and... Right. Um, Any scholarships? Anybody? Yeah, I mean, we all, I was a, like a national merit scholar. Oh, so yeah, we... Look at we, you. But I paid, I think I took out loans and I got probably half in scholarship, half in loans. I think mm -hmm. I, I paid for about um, $8,000 a year. So when you got out of school, I think I owed about 15000 maybe almost $16,000. And it wasn't, it was a lot, mm -hmm. but it wasn't $78,000. It wasn't sort of the adjusted for time, you know, um, you know, massive amount of money. 16 felt like, yeah, I can chip away at that over time in a decent job as I grew my career. And mm -hmm. so I do feel so sorry for young students who are paying these mass. I mean, they're just so in debt. Yeah, so it's expensive. crazy. So, so as, as someone who has had, uh, who comes from a pretty dysfunctional childhood. I, I feel I like wanna, I should be interviewing you about I your childhood. Hear, no, this I is making hear. me so interesting. <laughs> that's another Enough that's about another me. Day. What about your childhood? I want to hear about, like, I want some dirt. Give me something juicy that happened in your oh childhood. Like, you something know, you can look back on and go, hmm, I would change that. Like, mom burning the toast or something. Oh, so which is so funny. As you describe, um, I, I probably for everybody, right? Someone describes your childhood and, and we like, it's either dysfunctional or it's loving. Mm -hmm. But the reality is it's sort of like mostly loving with some crazy moments or super dysfunctional, but there were a couple of moments that you remember, you mm -hmm. know, and, and so, um, <laughs> mine was mostly loving, but mm -hmm. my mom had a very bad temper, really mm -hmm. very, very bad temper. And so I do remember her occasionally chucking plates at people that she was mad at. My mother threw not, uh, scissors at me. Wow. Scissors. That's, that's riskier. I yeah. feel like a plate. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but that was not a very typical thing. And it wasn't something friends of mine who've come from like very mm -hmm. crazy, abusive families, you know, almost um, flinch when they, you know, something happens. And, and it was, it was just so crazy to watch my mom who had finally just fucking had it and would take, and because we had a big family, you'd stack up the plates, right? You serve, hand it down, you serve. So you had a stack of just boom. Boom, boom, boom. And she would throw the plates at whoever she was mad at. It didn't happen more than once, but I do remember just being like, holy crap. <laughs> like what age? Oh, I probably was 12. I uh -huh. think we were in that throes of like extremely annoying teens and preteens. And mm -hmm. she was just, she was just, my mom that also. That could get the, the plates flying for sure. She was a, um, she, my, she really believed in hitting people with a belt. She was, a, oh, you know, yeah. so we, we got spanked. Um, my dad did that. You know, and although again, like. We, but at some point you just could outrun her and you just, you just run past her. Right. And was there ever a moment where you just looked at her and said, if you throw another fucking plate at me, I'm going to no, blah, blah, blah. That is such a like white person <laughs> thing to do. People really? call, people would say that to me. Well, just tell your mom you're staying out. Just tell your mom you're not coming in for the curfew. <laughs> just, and I was like, have you lost your mom? What? What? No, children of immigrants don't do that. You say, thank you. Yes, I will be home at nine o'clock, even though that's first. Well, don't get me wrong. I mean, I grew up in a very blue collar family. My father was a cab driver. Like we didn't, there was yeah, no you didn't talk like back to your parents. You, they would just, you would just, they would just. Well, I remember you. there was a point where my father, where I said something to my, when my father did something, I was like, if you 
like touch me again, I'm gonna touch you back. Yeah. Like that's that. And I remember that moment and it was really like liberating, yeah. you know, but, um, uh, and your dad, like temper, no temper, like was he? My dad like, was very calm. My dad is. The, was he scared of the plates flying? Or? No, and I don't think anybody was scared of the plate. They were like, "Yep, you know what? Everybody should probably you should probably right. made your bed today. Okay. Like she's just done." It was not scary, and I do think that's the difference between people who've grown up in a dis. You know, like you're. I would never have said to my mom, you know, if you touch me again, because it, it just wasn't how we lived right. for the ninety nine percent of the time. It right. was fun, and she was strict, but it was not. It did never really like tipped into being angry or abusive or scary ever. I mean, it was almost laughable. That was the problem. Like mm -hmm. you'd see someone losing their mind and you just start laughing. Yeah. Like, you really are mad. Now think of it this way. If you throw the plates, you don't have to wash 100%, and dry them. percent, yes. <laughs> yes, you sure don't. So it is efficient in some way. Um, Except you haven't eaten yet. So at, there's that. <laughs> I know you're big on mentorship. Yeah. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you. Relating to that, um, and sort of as an offshoot of our conversation, um, I think we all go through some kind of trauma in our mm -hmm. lives at some point, whether it's somebody died or something happened to you. Was there, is there anything in your life that is kind of traumatic that you reflect on that taught you something very important that pointed you in a direction that, you know, that became a silver lining in a way? I never had a lot of very traumatic things in my childhood. If anything, when I was writing my memoir, people were like, oh, come on. It was just boring. I mean, I grew up in a very non-diverse town. So every so often someone would say a thing and when you're young, you don't even realize it. Mm. You know, I was in my memoir, I read about going to, remember when main streets in a town, like your town, would have like a the photographer guy, you know, and there'd be like pictures in the, on main street of the photography place. And so we- Do we would, have that in there? Okay. But, you know, I think we, we certainly grew up in Smithtown. Oh, the phot oh, a photography studio. Right. But, oh, yeah, but yeah, it wasn't yeah, really a I... studio. It was like a guy and he'd pull the shade back and now you have the pumpkins behind you. Oh, you want Christmas? Pull the shade down and now you have the yeah, Christmas That guy's scene. probably doing about 50 years old prison right now. <laughs> <laughs> because of what went, so, went on when those shades went down. We went, to, um, <clears throat> we went to see the photography guy in Smithtown. My, I was probably 11. My sister was probably 14. She's three years older than me. And the photography guy said something like, so forgive me if I'm offending you, but are you black? <laughs> and like, th there was a lot of that. I, mm. I truly don't think that was traumatic. In fact, when I was 11, I was kind of like, I don't, I really don't, like, he seems so nice. I don't really understand. Why does that sound, that feels mm. kind of weird that he said that. My sister, who was 14 and definitely like put things together much faster, you know, she like grabbed my hand and we stomped out of that store. But there was that, though, but those were traumatic. Those were those moments where you then began to kind of sense them coming. Like things that were, oh, you're so nice for, or you're so pretty for a black girl, or you're, you know, those little comments that you're kind of mm -hmm. like. I, that's, and you don't I, think on some level that just even subconsciously that making you feel like you were different or no, like how I, you walk through life after moments like that? No, I don't. I don't. I do not think of it as traumatic. I definitely think of it as um being very good at being able to recognize microaggressions. Mm -hmm. Like you learn right. that um, I, I had a teacher once in my high school who said, oh, with a, and it was back in the day when miniskirts came in again for probably the fifth time or something. And, uh, and she's like, oh my God, it's so cute. You look like a prostitute. <laughs> right? you know Women love when they hear that. Don't, and don't I, was you guys? In, I probably was in seventh or eighth grade, you know, and again, like you can't really process that. Mm -hmm. It's like sort of a, we, not nice, weird, but there, and then miss, you know, she keeps walking. 
So there were things like that. And no, I don't, I came, my, my family was pretty healthy. So, and I had mm-hmm. a pretty good sense of self. So something like that wouldn't have sent me crying mm-hmm. to my room. Well, that's great. It would almost take me like a full day to be like, that fucking bitch. I can't believe, it. but it would take me a really long time <laughs> to begin to realize like, oh, so if he's saying, I don't want to offend you. That's kind of a weird way to put it, isn't it? Uh, I was right. Whenever, anybody ever says something like that, like prefaces a statement with no, like, yeah. it's it's like, well, you're clearly knowing that you're about to offend oh, me. I've had to tell my daughter who loves to say, no offense, mom, but, but I'm like, right. stop. Then let me stop <laughs> yeah, you there. Stop right there. Don't <laughs> offend me. You know, very te- when she was a teenager, she's now in her 20s. So it's gotten a little better. Um, and I have had things that have been like physically traumatic. I fell off a horse and had to have my knee reconstructed. Mm-hmm. And then many years later, I fell again and broke my leg and had to have my uh, meniscus, you know, like things that were I can I have had a trauma reaction. Yeah, oh, sure. for sure. So physically traumatic so yeah. that it took me a really long time to start riding again. When I would start jumping, I would just be in tears, like sobbing because mm-hmm. I just physically was terrified. Mm-hmm. And so I have never had that out in a in a different venue that wasn't mm-hmm. like a physical, I am afraid of doing this physical thing, mm-hmm. um, which in some ways I think, you know, made me kind of boring but stable. But it made me want to mentor people because we had a, even to this day, I think my family is pretty... Um, boring you know we're just pretty we like we're very stable and one of the things that i do with a lot of our scholars in fact one of our scholars is living with me right now because brent in new york city is insane and she's in her first year of a of a temporary you know um job and you know you realize like just giving people stability Mm -hmm. being able to say your tuition is taken care of like my parents did you know it's just going to be done you're going to college and we will have the money and there will be no chaos. There will be no, we're not doing it this year. Mm-hmm. The lights are out. I'm not sure you can eat. And just that stability, I, I really began to realize what a tremendous advantage that is when you come from a place where shit might be boring, but it's just going to be very, very stable. Well, it's so important. I mean, especially in the formative years to have that kind of you know sense of being grounded and having great roots and family that supports you it's it is such an advantage it really is Mm -hmm. and so realizing for these young women many who did not have that um you know that like what we could offer was you know stability Mm -hmm. you can stay in this apartment until you're ready to get a new Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. your job is secure and you're going to get a new place and Mm -hmm. and here's here's these are the rules this Mm -hmm. is what we do be a be a grown-up clean your dishes behave don't stay out late you know i mean it's that that has been really right, just a like nice the, thing uh, to give. Like the when you take a little kid bowling, there's those gutters that right. just to create right. gutters for people so that they young people they know how to stay in that lane, the good lane, so to speak. And know? do what you know we did for our kids and my parents did for me. When you make you get in the gutter, you're like, so you should know. You know, here we actually if we say we're gonna be home by ten, we're home by ten. Right. And so if you can't do that, that's going to have to have us like reevaluate how we think about this. But, you know, like if you say 10, then be home by 10. That's mm-hmm. I'm going to treat you like you are a grown person mm-hmm. who keeps her word. And, you know, that I think helps young women, mm-hmm. everybody develop into, a, you know, I'm a person who keeps my word. I like living here. I want to be here. And I recognize that it's disrespectful to treat people 
you know, differently. Well, that's about responsibility and accountability and maturity, uh, which I've heard you speak in the past about millennials. It was, I think, an older interview. They're 40 now. now. We could, now we could talk about Gen Z. Millennials are 40. You can't yeah. talk about them anymore. Millennials are like... I know. I'm, you know. You, so Gen Z, there are some people who believe that when it comes to responsibility and maturity and accountability, it, blah, blah, blah. Like Gen Z is like the worst generation. No, I, I mean, I know a handful because my daughter's Gen Z and mm-hmm. all my friends are Gen Z. They're pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. They're actually um, young women who are Gen Z put up with very little crap. Mm-hmm. They really do. Like, I think in my generation, you would just take a lot of stuff and put your head down and say, you know, because you kind of have mm-hmm. to. Oh, I think these women are like, you know, oh, absolutely not. Yeah, I see to my own daughter. She's yeah. going to be 19 in a few months and she's They're she pretty taking tough. no shit from anybody. Yeah. So I, I have not found them to be lazy or just, you know, I do think there is a, a, a piece of that that is if you're not finding satisfaction in your job, you move on. And I do think in, in jobs generally, you know, sometimes there's a long runway to figure out what you want and to mm-hmm. get the responsibilities. Oh. Do you think there's any impact from COVID? Like kids who were home when they're 15 and 16 or 16 and 17. Yeah, you see it. it the it, data around you know, just the learning gap is insane. Like right? that, that somehow has just rewired the brain a little bit. In a way that may not be as productive as everyone well, you, would like. You talk about trauma, and I do think there is an undermining of feeling like you can count on something, mm-hmm. right? You go, my my daughter, my second daughter, never really graduated from high school. They did a ceremony, a pretty small ceremony, a couple of years later, but you know, her whole entire high school from February on just didn't exist. Right. So all those things that you think about, yeah, but sure. you know, you look back and think it's kind of frivolous and silly. The formals, the events, the yeah, whatever. That's you know, so important. Like though. she missed all of, of it. Of course. And then her first year of college, um, you know, she she really set, she was remote. Well, they they didn't start till January, and then she was remote but on campus. So they sat in their rooms, doing remote schooling, but they weren't home. I mean, it's just weird, right? And. Well, so, my daughter had the same thing. She, she was going to go into school. And I said, you have teachers? And no, we're going to sit in a room. We're, gonna, we're all going to be on Zoom. I was like, so you go into where all the COVID is <laughs> just to be on Zoom? And she was like, oh, my God, you're right. And yeah. so she did remote. And my daughter went because she was, you know, for social people, they were losing their minds. Right. My, my, my daughter, who's the older one, lived her best life. She cooked. She <laughs> went horseback riding. She loved it. She just, she's a homebody. And she just... Um, but Cecilia, who she, it was very hard on her. And so mm. I think academically she's fine and was yeah. fine, but just this sense of like, there's stability in the world and you do this and then this follows next. And then this happens mm-hmm. next. I think when something like a pandemic happens, it undermines all of that. Sure. Um, you know, and it was hard to get her to want to go to school. She would say all the time, I just don't want it. I don't like it. It's not fun. I don't want to do it. And I was like, wow, here's a kid who's pretty academically strong. Mm-hmm. Who's talking about dropping out? I mean, it's so crazy. But getting her, she's now back and she's a junior and she's excited. But that was a pretty long haul. So imagine for students 
who were not necessarily that ambitious or that interested in academics. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, it was very challenging. Yeah. Well, I want to shift gears for a little bit and talk about this exciting project you've got coming out next week, the documentary called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, which yeah. I think the 19th is its, its release we date. start streaming on the 19th. On yeah. And I should mention that the two women who were the, the directors of that documentary are uh, Yoruba Richin mm-hmm. and uh, Joanna, Joanna Hamilton. You beat me to it. But, you know, I, I, the directors really do yeah. like the bulk of the work. And mm-hmm. I, I love promoting this this project and it's really important to me. But, mm-hmm. you know, you sometimes um, I think people think like, oh, so you wrote it, you edited it, you shot it. You, mm-hmm. you know, right. I'm like, no, no, there's really Wait, great what? team of you people. Did? I know. No, <laughs> and, and it's based on uh, Jean, I hope I pronounced her name right, Theo Harris's yep. best-selling uh, and it's a ACP award-winning biography great, from 2013. Yeah, it's a fantastic book called the same thing, The Rebellious mm-hmm. Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. And when I read her book, I was like, holy crap, everything I thought I knew about Rosa Parks, a lot of it was just wrong. I just mm-hmm. had it wrong. I mean, I think we think of Rosa Parks as a sweet, angelic, you know, the, the narrative we all have. One day, just sort of accidentally, you know, mm-hmm. she was tired from work and she sat on the bus and just wouldn't get up. And mm-hmm. her... You know, for a long time, she would correct journalists and she would say, I was no more tired than I was any other workday. I was tired of being treated badly and would talk about how the murder of Emmett Till was often in the forefront mm-hmm. of her mind when she made that decision. So her tired is, I'm tired of oppression, <laughs> not my feet hurt, and I'm just not going to give up my seat. But for mm-hmm. a long time, and, and she would say this, the media kind of liked this idea of the accidental civil rights you know, hero Mm -hmm. versus a woman who spent her entire life, really her entire life and and from her childhood onward, really, really um, worried about thinking about and working on uh, causes for justice and civil rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And for the record, you are an executive producer of of the film. Um, And so my takeaway from what I've seen so far and watched the trailer and seen an interview or two with you about it is that for all these decades, this is someone we've put on a pedestal, this iconic figure in history, uh, civil rights history. We've revered her, but we kind of don't have any idea who the hell she really was. We start, which is kind of fascinating because we teach. I mean, I remember being taught about Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks, like every kid knows Rosa Parks, every, but it kind of makes it backstory of who she really was before and after she got on that bus is what's so freaking fascinating. Yeah, and and I'm always interested in and in, in the why. So why was the why do people love the the concept of the accidental civil rights here? Even New York Times described her that way that she was you know quote unquote accidental mm-hmm. civil rights activist. Um, but it seems kind of like it would be that to me is almost like an easy question to answer. It's like it's just sexier in the media to have like some little old lady who just rose up one yeah. day mm-hmm. versus someone who was kind of an activist and, a, and an aggressive one and slogging. A, a militant even, right. you know, mm-hmm. yeah. because that's 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 not as interesting a story to the media. Yeah, I would agree. And I think um, the, the narrative of how things really get done, which is sometimes the slog, right? The year after year after year of working hard and sometimes, you know, toiling in the face of there's no chance at all that there's going to be justice. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It seems like it's a less sexy story. There's a great um chunk in the documentary where we talk about Rosa Parks' work with a woman named Reese Taylor. Reese Taylor was uh, raped by three white men who then dumped her off and said, if you tell anybody, we're going to kill you. And so Rosa Parks gets on a bus and goes into a pretty rural part of the state and, and interviews her. 
And I always think about that because I guess partly it harkens back to me about reporting. Like you have Reese Taylor, who is as a sheriff's car is going back and forth, you know, while Rosa Parks is there telling her story, knowing full well there will not be justice at all. Right. She's going on the record, but knowing perfectly well, no one's going to be held accountable. And then you have Rosa Parks, who is there, has taken a long bus ride, dutifully writing down. This is Reese Taylor's part of, you know, take on what happened. This is her side of her story. Um, also knowing full well, you know, no one's going to read it and say, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. We should do something. It will be lost to history for a mm-hmm. very long time. But it, to me, that's kind of the defining story of Rosa Parks. Like, even when you know justice is not coming soon, to still go and seek it and push for it and record the injustice because it does matter eventually. Not long ago, they just did a documentary about the Reese Taylor story. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't imagine being in the middle of it knowing full well. Like, this is a complete waste of time. No one is ever going to make this wrong right for you. It's I guess so that's, courageous in a way. It is. And that's, I guess, what makes real heroes is that they have they, they have a long game they're playing and they, can, they have a vision for the future. I mean, you just... I remember whatever a year or two or three. I'm losing track of time. Pandemic kind of did that to yeah, all of us, right? <laughs> and, and old age. Uh, when John Lewis died, and all the footage we started seeing again and realizing, like, and watching him get his ass kicked on that, you know, when he got off the bridge. And you have to think to your point, like in that moment, like he wasn't like, all right, today's Tuesday. A year and a half from now, we're going to have civil rights. Right. Right. Like he just could have. And likely thought, I'm getting my ass kicked for nothing. Nothing's ever going to change. But somewhere you know that that's not what any of those folks thought. They just, to them, it was just eventually shit's going to happen. Yeah. Well, and it's I, interesting. I may just pay the price. I may be the person who pays the price right. for it. Might not happen in your lifetime. That's right. And or, that or- that's heroism, uh, the ultimate in heroism, yeah. where you are not personally going to benefit by something that you are literally risking your life. Yeah, I think Rosa Parks, I mean, she refers to that a lot in her writings, right? This idea that it's just probably not going to happen in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. The thing that I thought was interesting as well was we never talk about what happens after the Montgomery bus boycott. Rosa Parks is never able to work again. She can't get a job. She and her husband, they absolutely, you know, so the the boycott is resolved, right? And Mm -hmm. the buses start running again. Black people start getting on the bus again and no one will hire her. But about 10 years or so later, that kind of changed? No, she had to move to Detroit and go stay with her family. She had to leave the state and mm-hmm. um, and go get a job in, in Detroit. And so I think, like, I had no idea. I never even thought about, like, mm-hmm. so what did happen to Rosa Parks after she sat on the bus that one day? Also, the other thing that I thought was so fascinating, there's a woman named Claudette Colvin who was 15 years old. And often people point to her as the first who really sat on the bus, if you will. But mm-hmm. she was young and she'd... You know, I think they didn't think of her as a as a, a perfect uh, example to bring through the courts. I didn't realize that she had been trained by Rosa Parks. They knew each other. Mm. They actually had a relationship. She was one of the young women that Rosa Parks uh, worked with, um, which was like, oh, I, I thought of them as very separate. Of course, it makes a lot of sense, a relatively small community. Um, but, you know, there's just so much you begin to realize uh, that you just didn't know about Rosa Parks. The docs opens with them. Um, that show to tell the truth where you have to pick, you know, who's 
who's who is this person? Right. Who, which is it? You know, candidate number one says I'm Rosa Parks. Candidate number two says I'm Rosa Parks, and the third one says I'm Rosa Parks. And there's a a, a, a desk of celebrities who have to guess. Right. And you see, each celebrity has no idea who Rosa Parks is. Right. She has been the center of this important lawsuit in a lot of ways. Right. Wildly famous that she's still taught in every elementary school today. And yet all three of them have no idea. The fourth one is Nipsey Russell. And Nipsey, Nipsey. Russell. And he says, I'm going to have to withdraw myself from this because I know Mrs. Rosa Parks. In fact, I um, performed at her event, you know, wow. et cetera. Et cetera. It's a really beautiful, it's the mm. first minutes of yeah. the documentary. And But I found what was stunning was that, you know, like she's just unknown. They have three angelic looking middle-aged black ladies sitting there and everyone's like any one of them could be rosa parks the, mm. the, the 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 women who are guessing the the celebrities who are guessing have have no real idea it's just interesting what you said before and i'm just looking at my own life thinking like okay literally all my years i had no idea what happened to rosa parks after that not at all me like, too just like <laughs> her life ended at the bus like that right. was it like you and I mean, it was basically <laughs> a, a, a it was like one day right it was oh like it started with the bus and it ended with the bus. And that was it. And no one ever revisits. And so we thought this doc was a really good opportunity mm. to set the record straight, just to really um, talk about, you know, Rosa Parks loved Dr. King and Malcolm X. You know, that's contradictory. And I think for some people, it's hard. People, Hugely. It's, right? It's hard to like hold those. Rosa Parks helped the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. Rosa Parks was absolutely a rebel and a, a revolutionary in a lot of ways, while also, you know, accepting uh, honorary degree after honorary degree mm -hmm. for her work in civil rights was literally, you know, absolutely just badass in a lot of ways. And and I think one of the reasons that she did all that was that she felt, you know, anything that moved us closer to civil rights was important. So she would yeah. so so it made sense for her. Dr. King and Malcolm X. They're both kind of aiming the same direction, maybe different tactics, but she supported it. And so well, you I, see, that's the, the, what you were saying before. That kind of explains like to white people or white media that that's a much less appealing narrative than little old lady on a bus. Yeah, no, it is. And you it's know. it. And remember, the very day that they were honoring Rosa Parks, she was lying in state in the Capitol one of the, I think, the very few women to ever do so. They were also literally undermining the Voting Rights Act. Exact same time. Right. And so people are giving these flowery speeches, talking about yeah, what it meant John Lewis her, was the same thing. You know, John just as that is happening on the right. left hand, on the right hand, they are just absolutely savaging civil rights. And so, you know, I think that um, that contradiction is sometimes really hard for the media to sit with and try to explain to people. It's very easy to say, this person's a hero, this person's a villain. This happened, it's very clear, this happened. And and, and you actually see it, I think, on the news today, right? Like everybody, yeah, well, that's a good segue, because I want I want to... Um, everybody has a side, you know, and it's this, and, and, and when you ever try to explain something that's nuanced, right. it's almost like, hey, 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 don't slow us down, don't make this complicated. <laughs> well, you... you uh, so the, the thing I want to talk to you about now, and by the way, folks... Uh, October 19th on Peacock. Yeah, start streaming on uh, Peacock. Check it out. Sounds like an amazing movie. I will be watching. Um, the, the media. Okay, so I want to talk about your... your. Uh, I mean, you are a badass. On Twitter, you are... I'm trying to be nicer, but sometimes it's hard. <laughs> You're, you, you kind of are in a... In a small group of people who really take on the media, and, and nobody does it the way you do. 
Um, and I find it great because I look at your tweets and I see it and I go, God, why isn't, why aren't there so many other people saying these things? Why are we letting the media get away with this kind of whataboutism and false equivalencies and, you know, all this stuff that they do and you see it all the time and nobody really calls it out the way you do. And so I want to understand, like, They're probably employed. they probably work for big networks no i'm I'm not i'm only half kidding but you know you realize like people don't like being called out and i don't a lot of people on twitter that could be doing it and they don't and they don't all work on a a network or something this there's a visceral passion that is clearly there with you like you see something and you just go right through whatever's around it (laughs) right to the point that needs to be made about someone's comment or their coverage, New York Times or Maggie Haberman or things that like, while everyone's, you know, patting Maggie on the back for all this stuff, like there there are people, I consider myself one of them, that look at uh, some of these folks and go, wait a second, like, why why are you doing this the way you're doing it? Like media's kind of broken now. And I think that there's a host of reasons. And one is cost, right? It's just cheaper to have talking heads. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole system has really moved to people fighting. You take this person over here, especially if they're on the left, they have a position. And this right. person over here on the right, they have a position. And, and you basically, you know, you're going to get more engagement out of anger. Mm-hmm. And so you just sort of let them go at it. And you also, it's a little bit of laziness. It's its cheap. And then also you don't need to know a lot, right? You can just say, so gentlemen, we're going to have to leave that there. Thank you for joining me. Um, you know, you don't need to say, but, but well, that part's true. But the third thing you say is a lie or actually the, what really happened here, because now you really have politicians. I mean, I've always interviewed a lot of politicians and they've always not necessarily stuck with the truth, but the bold face lying on camera didn't used to quite be as big of a thing as it is now where people will just completely lie. So I, I think it's a little, it's hard for reporters. It, and, and then of course you need them to come back. I mean, Trump was truly a, a cash cow in terms of being able to promote it. And, and so what are you going to do? This is my argument sometimes about, you know, Maggie Haberman and what I see is clearly is access journalism. It makes perfect sense to me that if you are writing a book about a person who you need to complete your book, you're, what are you going to do? Are you going to are you going to challenge them? Of course, you're not. Mm-hmm. You just won't. When I sit down for some with someone for a, a long interview, like a 10 minute interview, I don't start off with like the hard questions. I start off with the easy. So let's begin. With like it. whether you're a dog or a cat. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so that if they decide to rip off the mic and walk out at the end. I have a squirrel. God damn it. <laughs> what about I'm, the squirrel people? <laughs> um, you know, then you still have, you have the bulk of the interview. Right. And now it's actually interesting if they rip their mic off and they stomp out. And right. to some degree, you need people to participate. If you're like, it's not, right. it's not super complicated. I was like, it's not complicated. But there, there's an, I mean, I never worked in journalism, but my degree is journalism, broadcast journalism. Um, I, I spent a year at a school I think you're associated with, uh, in some level, Stony Brook. Oh, yeah, my dad. My dad was one of the first professors. Oh, yeah? One of the journalism? Found- no, he's oh. uh, physical, uh, mechanical engineering and physics. Oh, okay. And so integrity and um, uh, fact-checking and all these things. Yeah, they're kind of like 101. Gone. It just seems like it's gone, and it is has become like a, a UFC match. But that's the third piece of it, right, which is social media has made, you know, competing for eyeballs is now the, is now the, the real 
the real goal. And mm-hmm. that's what's happened. So you, you have to be more interesting and you have to be more provocative. But more recently, um, uh, I guess, uh, the, the Fetterman um, using closed captioning, right, was a big deal. Right. And, and, and actually, I, I don't, there's a lot that I don't think the reporter did badly. But what was really kind of crazy were her tweets around, it's an interview like you've never seen before. You're like, it really isn't. The guy uses close, he's not lying about using close captioning. It would be it would be amazing if someone was over his head holding up signs that translated what the, well, Whispering you know, in his ear. You know. That would be interesting. But, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so some of it is like she's trying to sell what she thinks is the gotcha of, of the scandal of the thing. And actually, I do think the idea that when someone has a stroke, they're processing um, becomes a little bit compromised. You could have just done that as a story. You could have said, here was our interview, you know, and a side note, you might notice that he was using a closed captioning. So we're going to explain, and here's Sanjay Gupta is going to explain to us what happens in a stroke. And for a lot of people who are stroke victims, mm-hmm. it comes back. They, they get that back. Like it's not a, it, it just felt like it was, they were trying so hard to be so salacious and so over the top. Right. And I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't care. Like, Fredman, I'm not in the state of Pennsylvania. It's not my rant. Like, whatever. So I just think media sometimes just fails us on that front. So you just end up having this this young woman. She's a young. Oh, she said, you know, I've never had anything like this. I'm like, well, you're 30. So let's assume you started working at 22. D- D- Dash or what is her name? Uh, Dasha Burns. Dasha Burns. Dasha. Dasha Burns. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I I think you know for and then people who watched it were kind of like, yeah, it's it's okay. It's. Mm-hmm. Um, I just felt like they were trying very hard to make a, a, a salacious, sensationalized story when there wasn't one. And so the people who pushed back weren't saying, oh, you shouldn't talk about the fact that he's had a stroke. They were saying, you realize the message you send to anybody who uses closed captioning is, right? It's salacious. They're probably hiding something. Can Are they really smart at all? Do they actually know? Mm-hmm. You know, it just was so unfortunate and it was not well wasn't well thought. I mean, I, I have a kid who's severely hearing impaired, right? I have not seen a movie without closed captioning forever because mm-hmm. the only way he can enjoy it and also not torture us and say, what are they saying now? What are they saying now? You know, is to to read it in right. closed caption. So the entire family, and my kids have done this from the get-go. You know, they just, we all sit and you watch with closed captioning. So another person can actually help the thing that he has to overcome, which in his case is, uh, you know, is a severe learn, uh, hearing loss. So I just I, I thought it was like the way it was done. And then mm-hmm. it undermines the, the trust in the whole system. And it also doesn't treat your audience. It treats your audience like co-conspirators versus like, here are some people who probably want to learn something. Number one, what are his policies? What does he care about? He's agreed to do this interview. He, we asked him these important policy questions because he wants to be a senator. But then the next piece of it is, you know, explain to your audience, help teach them. We do a show called Matter of Fact. Mm-hmm. We're now the number one public policy show oh, on the air. Congrats. I don't, I don't really know what that means exactly, but we're excited about it. And what we have found over the years is we do not actually have very few politicians on ever. And we do not let them debate somebody else. We literally just explain things to people. Mm-hmm. So what is the First Amendment? Everybody talks about the president being sworn into office. What exactly does mm-hmm. he swear to? Mm-hmm. So how do people in Puerto Rico get off a grid that seems to be failing them all the time? Mm-hmm. You know, so let's go to the actual border to talk about how people feel about the border on the border. You know, I mean, those are all shows that have done really well for us, a couple million people watching. Um so this idea that your audience doesn't want to understand and learn, I, I think they really do. I don't think gotcha moments. I did a, a show, one of Chris Matthews, probably one of his last shows. Castro had just died. 
and um, they had me on to talk about, um, you know, Castro's death. And right before I went on, and this was so shitty because it was like basically an ambush. They said, Jose diaz Belart is going to be on against you. I was like, oh, well, first of all, one. I didn't know I was fighting. I didn't know I was fighting. But also, like, it's just very inappropriate to do that with a minute five before you go on. So he comes on and he's sort of, you know, basically you can tell he's very revved up and he's going to take the side of being um, anti-dictator, which then awkwardly puts me on the side of pro-dictator and my mother fled Cuba. So I feel like on a whole bunch of levels, that's just not a bad. good path. To take. Not a good path at all. And and not even the path that I'm ever on. And, and I kept saying to him, but we agree. Like, you're right. Dictators bad. Batista bad. Castro bad. Like dictators are just bad. I really am not ceding any ground, man. That's totally true. But if you want to understand why 400,000 people who will tell you that they really hate the way that Castro in his last years kind of, you know, divided Cuba and America. But they're also out here. They Some of them walked it for hours to get here to mourn Castro. That's sort of complicated mm-hmm. and contradictory. Wouldn't you like to understand that? Like, well, would no you like new- me to tell you about why why I think they're doing that? So there's no educating the public. There's no room no for nuance. At all, at all. And, and because of that, I think you end up pushing a division that certainly exists, but I think not everything has to be divided you know insulin if you're a republican or you're a democrat or you're an independent you know there's a good chance if you're a diabetic you're going to need insulin like you don't have to approach everything as a fight well i think the 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 media today what infuriates me with everything you're saying is that they know that uh, american culture today is a tinderbox yeah well your goal is to just like that match and so given how insane the right has been to sort of go down that path of, ooh, is Fetterman uh, incapacitated or is there something wrong? It just... Well, you know how it's going to be used. Exactly. And, and see, there's no caution that seems to be put into those decisions right. well, I because think, of that. I think, I think those decisions, you know what you need. You are going to get... And by the way, I promise you that everybody afterwards was like... Did you see how much coverage we have our interview? Mm-hmm. So, Dasha, I know people are saying you're a terrible. No, I journalist. saw it this morning. She was, uh, it, but still getting props and. Yeah, it, I, again, I think it's a there's a long game and a short game, mm-hmm. and I think I'm sure she feels like long, you know, short game. People know her name, and this it, it won't help her in the long game because I don't think, I don't think you say, "Holy cow, that was an amazing interview by a young woman." She's going places. Mm-hmm. You say, wow, that was kind of set up to be salacious. And I, I get it. Now, or I have stroke in my family, and I don't like the way this was treated. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think that's been a real reaction mm-hmm. has been. So if someone needed glasses, if they had just had LASIK surgery, and they were going to you know, not be able to see for the next week, let's yeah, say. How many Americans have that? And you, and you handed them documents to read, and they said, honestly, I'm going to mm-hmm. need my assistant to read it out loud because mm-hmm. I, I actually can't really make up mm-hmm. the word. Would you, you know, would, would that be, a, again, it's the tone I, I felt. But that's where you are. And that, I think, erodes in the long term the, the trust because you feel like there's a game. And the game is to get eyeballs to But do you think that news. game is backfiring? Like, take the Hunter Biden situation. How many families in America deal with addiction? Mm, yeah. And here they are mocking a, a, fa- a loving father who is incredibly passionate and emotional about his son and talking to his son in a way that is so plaintive. And how do you feel anything but empathy and sympathy, yet they're turning that against, trying to turn it against him? But in a way, it, 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 I think it's a big backfire because how many people are sitting at home going, 
my son, my brother, my daughter, my father are, are addicted. And like, you don't make fun of people like that. You don't make fun of parents who are going through that. Yeah. But I mean, that's Fox News. So I think that's even a, a little bit of a different category where no matter what happens, that that's going to be the strategy, right? Mm-hmm. To attack, you know, um, Biden. It's now it was Obama. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of mainstream media picked up on that, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I didn't mm-hmm. see any mainstream news outlet. They covered the story, but they didn't cover it like, oh my God, this is, you know, mocking President Biden for, you know, for caring about his son. But I, I think overall, I think it's bad for media because people just lose trust. You understand. I remember once, I can't remember the name of the journalist, but I was at CNN at the time. I think she was at CNN. Maybe she was at I can't remember, but at what you might remember this, where she was in a paddle boat covering a big storm and then two guys walked behind her. Do you remember that? Like, and, and yes, the water was up to their ankles, probably like a solid seven inches of, you know, but it's, it's that moment that mm-hmm. I get it. You wanted to have a dramatic thing. You're in a little skiff and you want to show it, but, but you realize that the minute these people walk through that you're, you've lost the plot. You have decided that the shot is more important than What's kind of a good story anyway, seven inches of water is nothing to sneeze at. I'm sure it's affecting people like just report on what you see, right? Just report on what you see as opposed to making it and feeling like you have to sell it. Because well, isn't one of the most famous journalistic examples of that is when Geraldo Rivera back in the 70s, like hopped the fence to go to Willowbrook. But like literally, it was all open, like 10 feet to his left. <laughs> and yeah, he, you know, he scaled of, the wall, like, like you know, exactly. but look, you know, but now... How many years later in his career, you know, I mean, if that, you know, he had a, he had a long game and I guess it worked for him. And that was very much his style. But I I think more straight reporters are taking that on because they recognize to break through, you know, you can't just do a straight interview. You have to, you have to have a fight. Mm -hmm. You have to make news about the news that you're covering in a Mm -hmm. lot of ways Mm -hmm. in order to break through. So I think there's a host of reasons, right? I think it's a competition with social media. I think it's the cost of of, of reporting being mm-hmm. out in the field is expensive and it's mm-hmm. just much easier to take two people. And I've had people, you know, say to me, like, if you, we need you to say this, and if you say, well, I don't really believe that then they'll, and I've had friends too, you know, and they'll say, well, then we don't need you because we need this side and we need this side. And right. that's how you book it. Right. You no, know, there was a time where you'd say, so you've spent 25 years as a principal in a public school. We want to ask you some questions. Now it's, so we need the principal who's outraged that this teacher right. is being fired. Mm-hmm. Can you say that? And mm-hmm. if you say no, then you're not going to be on air. And also very much like the Real Housewives of wherever, if you're not over the top, you're not going to be a star. Mm-hmm. Right? The Real Housewife was like, wow, I think everybody here has a good point. And honestly, we probably should stop drinking because you all seem like you're getting a little crazy. Like yeah. that person. She's off the show She's week. so <laughs> off the show. You know, you want the person who's over the top, crazy. Throw the drink throw in the, the other Throw the drink, ones. pull mm-hmm. the weave, right? Mm-hmm. Because, and and they fully get that that is 100% correlated with how much money they will make. Yeah. So the guest who's like, well, actually, that's a really good question. It's kind of complicated and a little bit nuanced. Let me walk you through. Who wants that guy on? Right. You know, you need to, it's an outrage and you know who's responsible for it? But isn't that, and I want to shift to the, the news, but isn't that what's wrong with the, the problem with the two parties is that the Democrats traditionally are the guys who want to sit down, roll up the sleeves, get into the nuance and explain shit for an hour and people fall asleep. And Republicans make great bumper stickers. Yeah, I think that's a, a pretty fair broad strokes analysis. But, you know, I I think if you also have a media that only really wants bumper stickers, right, where they're like, listen, you got eight seconds to make your point. 
then you're going to really have some challenges, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, the onus certainly is on Democrats or whoever to, to come up with a message. But there are Republicans who are nuanced and thoughtful, and they will not get coverage because it's much more interesting to follow around Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's going to say something incendiary and something batshit crazy and quote Hitler, right? And all of a sudden, like, that's going to – and your, your, your editor or your news director will say, you are there. How come you don't have that? Who, in your mind, who is a Republican that is nuanced? I think Kinzinger is pretty interesting. Oh, okay. You know, um, I think there's right. a handful, and maybe right. not even after Kinzinger and Cheney. <laughs> yeah, but 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 actually, I think different people on different things, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going to ask about a stolen election, uh, you know, not a lot. Right. But I think if you're going to talk about like a specific policy, you know, you'd be amazed at how much mm-hmm. overlap that that you know somebody partly because their constituents do care about the cost of prescription drugs. So right. you're going to find Democrats who are going to be like, actually, I mm-hmm. don't think we should mess with that because they're funded by drug makers. And mm-hmm. you're going to find Republicans who feel like, you know, so yes, on individual specific issues, you you can find the nuanced person. I think broad strokes and you bring them on and you're talking about, you know, was the election stolen? You know, you're just going to get craziness right now. But, so what what keeps you up at night. Uh, so and, and don't say Brad snoring. <laughs> Brad does not snore. You oh, know what's good. problematic? I'm much more of a snorer than Brad. Um, <laughs> Gotta love a woman who snores. I know, right? And my mom was a big snorer. It's not terrible. And I used to drive me crazy. So I actually feel really badly about that. Um, I'm not a great sleeper. So everything keeps me up. But like literally everything keeps me up at night. Um, I guess... I run a small business, so kind of getting our business and making sure that we're delivering the things that we need to deliver and working on those things that we need to be working on is a big part of what keeps me up. And, you know, I don't see a way out of the current quagmire that we're in because everybody is rewarded for lying and everybody Mm -hmm. is rewarded for being over the top. Like, how do you, in a normal world, someone who's just absolutely crazy, like Marjorie Taylor, whatever her name is, um, would... uh, you know, she'd just be drummed out, right? No one thinks she's smart. No one thinks she's thoughtful. Nobody thinks, you know, even her own colleagues. But but they see that she draws the cameras. And then the cameras draw the money, mm-hmm. right? So it's hard to no, it's argue. it's all performative, for right? sure. And it's hard to argue mm-hmm. against that. And you see her colleagues who are more thoughtful and more quieter. And, and they can't get any airtime, right, to say, well, actually, there's some nuance in this position. Let mm-hmm. me explain. They just won't get on TV ever. Mm-hmm. No one wants to talk to them. And so... The media is complicit in this idea. I remember when CNN once had a guy, he was white supremacist, identified as a white supremacist. And they gave him basically four minutes to like just do a recruiting video. <laughs> so, you know, and, and those conversations, I mean, those people have always existed, but we used to have like real conversations. So how do we handle this guy? So he's making news, but do we give him a mic? Do we, do we edit out the bullshit? Do we... Well, can we go back? This, this is a, a subject I, I try to talk to everyone I talk to about because I'm still not sure where I sit on it, but there's a big part of me that just feels like Trump opened up something that we can never put back in. And well, that it's was civility. A, that was, it's, yeah, but that was open. Remember, remember how, I mean... You don't, not like this. Well, not in recent memory, but we've had people who were hit with canes on the floor of the Senate, right? You've had you've had the pictures of small children, you know, being walked by a police to school because right. of you know during busing. So I, right. I think I think those things are always there. And very rarely have I, they had the tacit um, support of a very popular president who. Um, 
who was also like a pop culture mm-hmm. figure, right? That was a little bit different. But yeah, no, we've had similar things. I, you know, when people say this is not us, I'm like, oh, this is completely Oh, it's us. definitely us. If we do it, it's us. And I think also what's happened is that the reward system around it. I mean, there was a time when someone would do that. And everyone's like, wow, that person, that's they just killed their career. That's it. They're done. But now the reward system is they'll get a show, right? The more over the top, the more awful you are. And some of that is people have recognized it gets eyeballs. It just gets eyeballs and we're in the eyeball business. So you think when there's like norms and boundaries and things like that, that have been sort of just respected over the years, now that they, they've been just drowned, like it, it, we're drowning in the, in the breakdown of that. You, you think we can go back to a time when, you know, the, the, the people who lived under the rock just went back on, go back under their rock and, and keep the, 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 the quiet parts quiet. Yeah, I, I don't think it's, I think we've done that in American history. I mean, we had slavery, right? Like mm-hmm. the quiet, like we, you know, so we've, we've done these back and forth and whatever. And then, you know, then you have Jim Crow and then you have entire black towns you know, burned to the ground, you mm-hmm. know, so people do come back and forth. It's not going to be like by late next year, it should all be resolved at all. I, I think we're going to have to work through it. It's certainly not going to happen while Donald Trump is alive because you, he also, you know, flogs it and fans the flames. And it's, you know, it's very problematic. And none of his children have, you know, the apprentice, right, was this this stamp on a person who a lot of people knew was a liar about mm-hmm. how much money he had, who, who knew that he was a racist. I mean, but that's kind of my point. Like, have we ever had a time in history where tens of millions or 30% of the country or whatever the number is, we're in a cult because that's where, we're, where we are now. These, this isn't just like, oh, some people are doing bad stuff in this country and we've had bad stuff. We have a solid chunk of, of our citizenry in a cult. Yeah, but they're kept That's some it, scary shit. Yeah, but they're kept there because it makes it makes it it's very convenient to have them there, mm-hmm. right? It's the the challenge is when the people in the cult turn against you, which I think some Republican elected mm-hmm. officials have discovered that suddenly the the cult starts chasing you up the So that's what I want to ask you that. Do you think do you think we're getting out of that? Do you think oh, no, I don't the think whole we're Trump out of thing it. Oh, like Oh, absolutely not. No, but I, I think going? we I think I think you can. I don't think that soon. I don't think I think it's, you know, we have a, it's hugely problematic. And of course, social media has made it, you know, worse because you just have access to, mm-hmm. you know, information in, in a very widespread way that you just didn't really have it like that before. But do you think Trump gets indicted? Do you think he goes away? Do you think the Republican mainstream kind of coalesces and gets back to their normally offensive ways <laughs> you know, that we all would love to have them do now compared I, I, to the shit they're I doing? I think there's too much benefit to the craziness right i think that i think for republicans who are the mainstream republicans it's really helpful to have a whole bunch of people over there who are trying to undermine someone's campaign Mm -hmm. and you know and if that means that they're all talking about how jfk jr is coming back next week then so be it because they're trying to take out a candidate he he hasn't come back yet not yet i heard october 10th or maybe that was the end of the Mm -hmm. world date no i think that was when we were all going to die from covid and vaccines and y2k that Oh, I do, I we don't have that. to worry about that anymore? Not anymore. Okay. I'm just not I'm trying to keep then. it all in, in my head. But, you know, so I, I do think that there's um, a value, right? There's a, a value to that. And so you're not going to see anybody really disavow it anytime soon. There, I remember, right, before 
I left CNN. I was doing a lot of stories with, um, you know, kind of middle of the road Republicans who were all quitting because they were just like, this has gotten too crazy. At that time, it was the Tea Party. And, you know, you'd go interview people from the Tea Party and they'd have taken the subway to D- into D.C. and they'd be so mad, you know, because they were kind of like, I just can't believe that the times these trains run, but I want less government. <laughs> you're like, all right, well, let's, you know, talk about this because you're contradicting yourself you know but you're you're those people had a value right they could be used to some degree as as pawns if you're being charitable or Mm -hmm. just there's a value to you know sticking them on uh, a candidate and you know and there's a and, and i think there's a lot of money in it i really do i think you can look at a number of talking heads who just spout the most ridiculous stuff the ones i worry about are mainstream media who then embrace it and elevate it and give it a platform right like that to me is is really problematic. Like, well, you know, there is a side over here and you let's give them a platform. And I am very loath to mm-hmm. give really despicable people a live platform. I think you there's a zillion ways to cover stories and talk about issues that aren't. So I gave him a live mic and I basically let him sit here and, you know, and talk for 10 minutes. But we're in a very weird time in the media where you just see a lot of that. And, um, you know, where, where white supremacists get airtime and they're described as dapper and they're just, you know, well, dapper is, is, is a compliment. You know, there's no guy who's dapper where you're, you're dissing them. You could just give a straightforward description. Right. He always wears a suit and tie when he goes, mm-hmm. you know, that doesn't have that right. sense of like. He's, Not editorializing. Right. So mm-hmm. we're in a very weird time for mainstream media. That Even if his suit better. is a white you know, right, right. Even if it's made out of bed sheets yeah. and it has a hood on it, and uh, is our democracy in peril? Yeah, I think so. Like Listen, serious peril? Peril? Yeah, I, you know, I think so because I think. Um, Anytime you have people who, let me listen. So, so I spent a lot of time in Cuba <laughs> and, and I remember going to, to visit my relatives and being in their house when it was elections, right? And the goal was to have everybody vote for Castro. Um, you know, and so someone comes to the door, comrade, have you voted yet? And my uncle who is very, um, intransigent used to say, no, not yet. No, no, not yet. You know, and like, th- like it's not, it's not a far ride to get to that, mm-hmm. right? Where you have people who are willing to say and to do. And I mean, if you're willing to say, I'm going to go to the Capitol and overturn the results, uh, even if you're badly organized and some bunch of idiots and they're all, you know, doing selfies and, and posting to Instagram of their own crimes, like it's still not a long step to say there was a sense that, you know, the election should have gone the way that they wanted it to go. Mm-hmm. And, and we see examples of this, you know, pretty frequently. I think Wisconsin is a really good mm-hmm. state to look at kind of what's happening in local politics there. So yeah, no, I, I think, I think democracy is always a fragile thing. And I think, um, and I think when you are willing to have someone who's willing to be a bomb thrower and everybody else doesn't want the mob to turn on them or they see the advantage to the mob. So they're not going to say, this is ridiculous. This is wrong. They're going to mm-hmm. say, you know what, let's just let it play out a little more. Well, let's it seems just- like the big thing we've learned in the last couple of years is that, um, our constitution, our system is woefully unprepared to deal with someone like Trump and his mob and and the tactics that people like that will, would use to retain power. Like yeah. there are holes in our system that all we, of a sudden... We rely a lot on decorum. Mm-hmm. We rely a lot on the way it's always been done. We rely on, you know, this is how it always works. And I think there are people who understand how 
you can seed the courts. Mm -hmm. There are people who understand how you can seed uh, local school boards and what that is, you know, you're able to do. And so I think those people are, again, playing a long game and understand power and everybody else is sitting around. I I, I do fault sometimes the Democrats for not really um, being on top of that as much and not, you know, understanding where, you know, that the war is being fought over here. Um, on this front over here. Um, I do think Democrats often feel like, listen, everybody at the end of the day, we all want to work together. Well, you know, sometimes that's a real challenge um, to work with somebody who doesn't, it's like playing a game with mm -hmm. people who don't want to respect the rules. It can be very challenging or if not impossible. So yeah, I, I, again, I always think that I think democracy is always a fragile thing. What do, you, what do you think happens next month? I don't know. You know, I, I don't think there's a chance that Trump gets goes away for anything. Um, I just don't see that happening. Um, Does the House flip? Does the Senate flip? I don't know. I don't. Is there a I, surprise where yeah, Democrats always, November? Know, like, is that going to be a big thing? I don't know. And I, I always feel like there's a sense that, um, I mean, think of all the times that we've looked at polls and then the story the next day is, oh, where do we go wrong in the polls? We're going to take a leader. <laughs> right. So I don't know the answer to that. You either love those days or hate those yes, days. Yes, you really do. And I, I've, I've been on all sides <laughs> of that where you're just, you know, I, but I thought it was clear. Um, so I don't know. I don't know mm -hmm. the answer to that. And yeah. I don't know if people, um, I am always amazed. You know, I have a, I, I, lots of people I know who voted for Trump and um, who are smart um business people, you know, and they think it's funny. It doesn't affect them. They don't care about the racism. They don't care about, you know, they think those, those wackos who get put on the daily show because they're conspiracy theorists, they think it's sort of like weird and amusing. And they're just like, listen, at the end of the day, my taxes got cut. And that was important to me. Yeah. Or gas. I mean, I've, I've actually debated with people. We're a little alike. I've heard you say that you you fight with people on Twitter. I like to mix it up a little bit too sometimes, <laughs> but um, I've had people like, I, I said, it's, Saving two dollars a gallon of gas uh, on gas is that more important to you than saving democracy? But you know what's interesting? And, and they don't see it that way. They're they're like, well, you're asking them to vote against their self interest. And when we talk about other people, right, we sometimes make fun of people for voting against their mm -hmm. self. And we say, you know what? These people would much rather vote against this than let black and brown people have access to it, right? They're voting against their own self-interest. And you're saying the same thing about, right. I mean, I, there are times that I vote against my self-interest. Yes. I, should I want to pay less for something? Sure. Do I think, well, actually, to help the environment, I'm happy to pay more. And actually, if my tax dollars will go to help students, I'll pay more. But there's an altruism to what you're doing, like saying I'm okay with autocracy because my guy would be the autocrat. Like th that's not altruistic. That's just like that's really self-serving. Like yeah. I don't give a fuck about democracy as long yeah, as Trump's are, president and gas is two fifty a gallon. Yeah, like, but I think the people who are who vote against their self-interest, those are the interesting ones, and we make fun of them when they mm. do it sometimes and then we sort of do it too it's a we're you know we also have failed to really educate people if you ask your average person about like how government works they have no fucking clue no but I curse this, a lot. I hope that's okay the issue of saving <laughs> democracy is not something we've ever had to deal with. i mean you know i i'm going to be 63 in a week and the image Happy of birthday almost thank you I always like to say now that I, I don't really celebrate getting a year closer to my death. I think <laughs> birthdays are for young people. Because <laughs> that's the reality. Birthday. I love my life, but I don't like it. I love I, my I'm, birthday. Yeah. Oh, okay. I love my birthday. Uh, when is your birthday? I just had my birthday, September 19th. I oh. was 56. Happy belated. Thank you. All right. I love my birthday. Thank you. Okay. So we're at a similar age yeah. group. And 
when you saw thousands of people storming the cat, like, could you ever in your wildest imagination envision something like that happening? So I think we're but living you know in like we, unusual, worse than that. Worse than that is all the elected officials lying about it. Yes. Well, that's right? like, that's and, my point. and then worse than that is me news media inviting them to come on the show and having them back again and again, not holding them accountable. Right. And worse, you know, so, so yeah, that was just crazy. But what I find really crazy is that it just doesn't keep somebody off the air. And by the way, I think, again, if you are a newsmaker, there's ways to cover a newsmaker mm -hmm. without saying, I'm going to give them a mic because I think if they're not going to tell you that the election was decided, you know, justly and fairly, if you're going to put people on who spout misinformation and disinformation, you know, you're, you're undermining your own industry. And mm -hmm. I, I do think that's what the news media has really done. Well, uh, I hope a month from now things go the way they're supposed to go uh, for this country because I think it's a really important election. I know everybody always says, oh, this is the most important election in history. Th this one, I, <laughs> I think, really is. You've been incredibly generous with your time, Soledad, but I, I want to give you a chance to, if you want, to talk about Starfish Foundation and the Oh, we changed the name. It's now powerful. called the Powerful mm -hmm. Foundation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I would encourage folks to check us out um, online. Uh, just Google Powerful. It's Powerful, mm -hmm. clever, right? Right. A foundation. We send girls to school to mm -hmm. and, and through school. And mm -hmm. it's just been a great way to invest in young women who, you know, when we started, I thought like, oh, the money is the most important thing and the money is important. But actually giving people guidance and support and mentoring to help them get through mm -hmm. is really, really critical. So it's really what we do. It's a real it's a real passion. And so is it powerful.org or what is the URL? powerful foundation FDT.org. Mm -hmm. OK, yeah, check, it out. check that out. Thank you so much, My pleasure. Soledad. It's so nice You've been to amazing see you. And very Thanks insightful. for having me. Appreciate it. So there you have it. Episode 20 in the can. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Leave us a message at 845-307-7446. You can email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Andy Ostroy. And if you do listen to the pod and you like what you heard, leave us a review. It's really important. Uh, these podcast review things. At this point, I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, our Jane of All Trades, Jen Hamoud, who's not here today. Hopefully she's somewhere fun. New Orleans. New Orleans. Narlins. Narlins. I keep thinking of what Matt Friend said about Trump, like pronouncing like, Nerlians. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Cricket Langale for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our special guest, Soledad O'Brien. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. Bye.